Well, hello there. It's Stuart Haynes, and welcome to the iFormerX podcast, where we explore the evidence that informs ambulatory care pharmacy practice. As we've previously discussed on this podcast and in several iFormerX commentaries over the past five years, systemic inflammation plays a critical role in the development of atherosclerotic vascular disease. Medications that reduce markers of systemic inflammation have pretty consistently reduced the risk of cardiovascular events. Nonetheless, there is still some debate about whether systemic inflammation should be a specific treatment target, similar to the way we screen, measure, and treat blood pressure and serum lipids, for example. Three years ago, in January 2018, we reviewed the results of the CANTOS study on iFormerX, and the results of that study are pretty compelling, even if canakicumab, the the drug that was used in CANTOS, isn't really a very practical treatment choice. Then in November 2019, the Colcott study was published, which used colchicine to prevent recurrent ASCVD events in patients following a myocardial infarction. Similarly, we reviewed the results of the Colcott study here on iFormerX, and the results largely confirm CANTOS. Treating systemic inflammation lowers the risk of cardiovascular events. Most recently, in August 2020, the Lodoco 2 study, which enrolled patients with chronic ischemic heart disease, was released and published by the New England Journal of Medicine. So the question is, do the results of this study make colchicine a new standard of care that should be offered to every patient with established ASCVD? Well, joining me today to discuss the results of the Lodoco 2 study are Rob Howe and Taylor Huff from the West Palm Beach VA Medical Center. Dr. Huff is a PGY2 cardiology pharmacy practice resident. And Dr. Howe is a clinical pharmacy specialist in cardiology and the PGY2 Cardiology Residency Program Director. You may recognize Dr. Howe's name as he's been an author on several iFormerX commentaries, including the commentary on the Colcott study. Taylor, it's, it's wonderful to have you here today as a first-time contributor to iFormerX. And Rob, I'm delighted to have you back. Thank you for having us, Stuart. I'm looking forward to the discussion. Yeah, thank you very much, Stuart. It's always great to be here. I'll talk about colchicine any chance I get. Well, (laughs) before we get started, I'd like to revisit a case that we talked about a few months ago when we talked about the Colcott study. It's now 10 months later. JT returns to the cardiology clinic for a follow-up appointment, and he's now 59 years old. He's an African-American male, a Gulf War veteran, and he's had two cardiac bare metal stents placed about a year ago, the patient was referred to you to, quote, maximize his treatment regimen, and you've been working closely with him to keep his blood pressure under optimal control, and he has been very good about taking his high-intensity statin therapy and an antiplatelet regimen. Unfortunately, the patient was hospitalized with COVID-19 in July, and following his discharge, he's had persistent shortness of breath and poor exercise tolerance. A workup was performed and revealed that his left ventricular ejection fraction was 30%, and he was diagnosed with New York Heart Association Class 3 heart failure. The patient has a strong family history of coronary artery disease, and he previously smoked two packs per day, but He eventually quit in 2006. 
He currently takes Secubitril Valsartan combination product, or Entresto, twice daily, Metoprolol XL, 100 milligrams daily, Clopidogrel, 75 milligrams daily, plus aspirin, 81 milligrams daily, and Resuvastatin, 40 milligrams daily. He weighs 213 pounds, his BMI is 29.7, and looking through his medical record, you note that his blood pressure readings have been consistently less than 120 over 70 at his last three visits. Labs drawn two weeks ago indicate that his fasting glucose is 87, serum potassium of 4.7, serum creatinine of 1.2, and estimated GFR is greater than 60 mils per minute. LDL cholesterol 61, HDL 41, and triglycerides are 198. So, Rob and Taylor, before we talk about the study you reviewed in your commentary, I'm wondering about some of the things going through your mind in this case. You're about to meet this patient. What additional information would you want to collect and assess during the encounter? And what questions would you ask? And if there were a face to face visit, would you perform a targeted physical examination? What additional labs would you get? What additional treatment options would you be considering? So lots of questions here, and I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts are. Yeah, so, so you've got a ton going on here, and, and unfortunately this is uh, kind of the nature of these patients, that it's very complicated situations. Really essentially kind of looking at this patient, you've, you've really got three kind of silos that you're working with here. You've got kind of the coronary artery disease side of things, unfortunately now this new heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, and then also the, the COVID issues. So we're, we're here to talk about colchicine, but I think this does force us to really remember that, you know, all, these patients are complex patients, uh, and we want to make sure we're starting looking at the patient as a whole, and then we're addressing the most important things first as we can, um, as it's, these things can quickly escalate and uh, layer a lot of things on top of patients. So I'll just maybe step back. So as far as the COVID infection, obviously the times we're in, you know, this is something worth talking about. It'll be interesting to see years from now if this is something that we see a trend in with heart failure patients. Um, so we know that globally, uh, about a quarter of hospitalized COVID patients have some cardiovascular complication, and that these play a key role in the mortality, unfortunately, for a large number of these patients. Now, the nature of these complications vary, um, but from a heart failure side of things, one of the things that we look at is this myocardial inflammation or myocarditis uh, that can occur along with just widespread inflammation associated with COVID-19 infection. And then the complication there is largely if they're scarring that can result and then the acute and chronic concerns that might come along with that. So acutely, those concerns raise possible risk for things like arrhythmias. Uh, and then the scarring and inflammation chronically, we could have a group of possibly COVID-related heart failure patients down the line, the way we see with other viral infections. Now, ultimately, you know, I'm not going to be able to tell you how many patients this is. Depending on the study and the cohort you look at, the estimates of myocarditis involvement is anywhere from 2 to more than 20%. So we don't know. But ultimately, whatever the etiology, if you've got a patient now who continues to have a reduced EF, that's something that we need to address. And luckily, we have therapies for that. And it's something that both as we're dealing with patients with COVID and then in the period recovering from COVID, cardiovascular concerns are something to keep in the back of your head as patients recover. So I think I'll throw it to here to, to Taylor to talk specifically about some of the heart failure issues and some of the therapy considerations there for this patient. Yeah, so going into this into this appointment, there's a checklist of things in my mind that I'm going to want to ask this patient. The first thing I'd ask is just see how he's doing today. So is he better, worse, the same? So reevaluating his NYHA class and symptoms. 
I would want to review his blood pressure, heart rate, and weight at home, and importantly, does he have the ability to monitor these at home? If not, we can set him up with a monitor or scale. And finally, I'd want to see if he's tolerating the medications, having any side effects, and also assess if he's being adherent with medications as well as lifestyle modifications. You also asked about labs. At this time, I really don't think it's necessary, as he just had his labs taken about two weeks ago. In regards to the available treatment options for this patient, I think the heart failure should be addressed first, as we have proven therapies that can provide additional morbidity and mortality benefit. The first thing to consider would be taking a look at his current medications he is on, like the beta blocker and Arnie, and just optimizing those doses. Next, we'd want to look into the other therapies to consider adding at this time or even at upcoming visits. So starting with an aldosterone antagonist, I think it would be reasonable at this time to go ahead and start. His serum creatinine and potassium are appropriate, so we would just need to have close follow-up with this patient. He is African-American, so you could consider adding hydralazine, isosorbide dinitrate, and having a discussion with the patient to see if he's even willing to take something that's three times a day. And finally, an SGLT2 inhibitor would also be reasonable given the results of the DAPA-HF and recently published Emperor Reduced. We would want to know if he has any history of UTI or genital infection. Yeah, so so I think that's a, a good wrap up of the the you know the heart failure therapies. There's things luckily that we can do to help reduce his risk for mortality. I think I'll just throw in there is that also with a continued reduced EF and, and symptoms, is making sure that he is evaluated for device therapy. Again, we've got CRT and AICD placement. We're obviously, as pharmacists, we're not the ones going sticking those in there. Nobody wants me doing that to them. But uh, it is something that we do find these people sometimes where the that workup hasn't been done. So uh, make sure that's done. And also to kind of tie back to the CAD side, thinking about cardiac rehab uh, is something that, that has beneficial outcomes in both for the heart failure and CAD stance. So that's something to offer to the patient. And with that, maybe I'll kind of just bleed back into the uh, CAD silo um, that we're talking about here. Now, he's on dual antiplatelet therapy and RAS inhibition. You know, he's coming up to that year mark. So discussion of whether or not we continue the dual antiplatelet therapy is something that we discussion we have with him. But really then we kind of get back to the point once we've done all mortality reducing therapies, perhaps then should we be considering coltracine for the patient? Well, that's a nice segue because the study, obviously, that you reviewed for your iFormerX commentary is about the use of colchicine in patients with chronic coronary artery disease. And so, Taylor, let's talk about your critique that you did for your iFormerX commentary. The study, uh, which is entitled Colchicine in Patients with Chronic Coronary Artery Disease, was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in August. And we provide a link to that paper on the iFormerX website. But for those in our audience who haven't had a chance to read that paper yet, can you give us a brief summary of the study design and the major findings? This trial evaluated the safety and efficacy of colchicine in patients with stable CAD. Patients were excluded if they had a moderate to severe renal impairment, severe heart failure, severe valvular disease, or known side effects of colchicine. Prior to randomization, patients entered a run-in phase during which they received colchicine at a dose of 0.5 milligrams daily. Patients who tolerated therapy remained stable and adhered to the treatment regimen were randomized in a one-to-one fashion to colchicine at a dose of 0.5 milligrams daily or placebo. So the primary outcome was a composite of CV death, spontaneous MI, ischemic stroke, or ischemia-driven revascularization. 
The mean age was 66. There was a low percentage of female, low percentage that were current smokers, and low percentage that were had diabetes. A majority of patients had a prior ACS event with around 68% having the event more than 24 months prior to randomization. Almost all patients were taking an antiplatelet or anticoagulant, around 23% on dual antiplatelet therapy, majority of patients on lipid-lowering therapy, around two-thirds of patients on beta blocker, and around 70% on a ROS inhibitor. The primary composite endpoint occurred in 6.8% in the colchicine group compared to 9.6% in the placebo group, which represented a 31% reduction in risk, and this was statistically significant. This resulted in a number needed to treat of 36 patients to prevent one composite event over a treatment period of 28.6 months. So when looking at the individual components, this is driven by a statistically significant reduction in ischemia-driven revascularization and MI. ADRs were similar between both groups, with myalgia occurring more frequently and gout occurring less frequently with colchicine. So Taylor and Rob, I think most people would consider LODOCO2 to be a positive study, again, demonstrating the positive effects that colchicine can have on cardiovascular outcomes. In looking at the conduct of the study, what do you consider to be the strengths and potential weaknesses? What uh, concerns does it raise? And, and does this study establish colchicine as a standard of care that should be offered to most patients with coronary artery disease or just to some patients or just a limited few? Yeah, so I'm going to go ahead and quickly uh, discuss the strengths. This was a randomized placebo-controlled double-blind trial. They had a large sample size. Around 5,500 patients were randomized. These patients were on solid background therapy, as I discussed previously. And I think this answers a very important clinical question about further risk reduction in patients with CAD. Yeah, so I completely agree. I mean, this is a, a well-done study um, with no real fatal flaws, but certainly there's some things to discuss here. So first are a couple of things regarding the design of the trial that relate back to the generalizability of the findings. So first, the trial, like Taylor said, was done in a primarily male patient population, specifically in Western Australia and Netherlands. So as unfortunately we see often in cardiovascular literature, uh, women were underrepresented here and the extrapolation of other ethnic groups may be challenged, but uh, I don't see this at this point as like a fatal flaw and I don't have any real biological reason to think that the, the results wouldn't extrapolate to other groups. Next, specifically, the colchicine dose that was used was 0.5 milligrams, which is different than the 0.6 milligrams that at least we have here in the U.S. So for some of this, this could be an issue. Uh, and what's unknown at this point is if this 20% difference in concentration could ultimately impact either the outcomes, whether it be efficacy or safety. However, again, you know, my gut says it's, uh, it's probably okay. We've extrapolated that from some of the pericarditis data and, and used our kind of U.S. doses with benefit. So with those said, I think the biggest issue kind of to discuss regarding this trial is the pre-randomization run-in phase. So again, as Taylor alluded to, patients after they were enrolled went into a one-month uh, essentially tolerability run-in phase in, in which 15% of patients were actually dropped out during this phase before randomization. And of those patients dropped out, about 60% or overall about 9% of the overall enrollment phase was lost due to perceived side effects, for which about half were GI-related, as you'd expect with colchicine. For me, uh, this dropout rate, largely for ADR reasons, makes really me question the finding of equal discontinuation rates between the trial arms. It might skew what we might actually see in clinical practice. So I don't think losing sight of making sure we're educating patients about possible GI side effects 
From a statistical standpoint, you could have the consideration that dropping patients pre-randomization due to tolerability concerns kind of enriches your potential drug effect. You don't have those patients in the intention to treat arm who aren't exposed to the drug. So possibly as far as looking at drug effect versus placebo, based on what you'd expect in practice, you may potentially not see the same overwhelming benefit, but the benefit was very strong. And I don't think adding those patients back in would necessarily change the overall uh, interpretation of this trial or the application. So really for me, the run-in phase is very much a, uh, a safety issue versus an efficacy issue. So ultimately, kind of bring all that back to get back to you know, colchicine's place in therapy. Ultimately, at this point, I really think LODOCO2 helps to continue to confirm the potential benefit of colchicine and CAD management. When we look at this along with other trials, whether it be the LODOCO1, and then probably most importantly to combine this along with the Colcott study, we see a, a largely a consistent benefit with colchicine reducing cardiovascular events. Now, for those of you familiar with the study, you may have also seen that at the same time the uh, LODOCO2 was presented, also a study called COPS was presented. And this is specifically an Australian study that looked at colchicine again in a, an ACS population. Now, this was a negative study, but the real caveat with that is the trial was actually powered for a very large difference in event rates. So it really was underpowered to potentially detect what we what was suggested as a possibly clinically relevant difference. It was powered to find about a 50% difference, and it looked like there might have been about a 30% difference, which is what's consistent with other studies. So it kind of really negates the ability for that trial to kind of poo-poo on Colchicine's potential benefits here. And, and I really think ultimately what we have to ask ourselves is, is this non-fatal event risk reduction enough to make a therapy part of standard therapy? And while I'd say softer endpoint is at play here, it's probably at least reasonable that it's something that we can't just throw out. Something we definitely need to consider. And if you think about it, you know, this is something in cardiovascular medicine that we do. I mean, if you look back at just dual antiplatelet therapy, something that's dogma, something that this patient's on, that's based on non-fatal MI risk reduction from the CURE study. Now, with that being said, as Taylor just went through, this patient, by the time we're done with him, could be potentially on four new therapies, which uh, is a lot for patients. So we want to make sure patients are bought into that, that they're optimal background therapy, that we've knocked off the key things that we should before we think about adding colchicine on. So perhaps it, it, it is maybe a therapy not for everyone. For me, these might be patients who have gone to cath multiple times um, and are being medically managed to prevent a further intervention, or those patients who have had multiple recurrent interventions and have multi-vessel disease. So kind of your highest risk patients to come back into the hospital um, are the patients who I would probably most likely think about looking at colchicine for at this point. So Taylor, let's return to our case. Given the complexity of JT's medical history and his high medication burden, would you consider augmenting his current regimen with low-dose colchicine? If the patient told you that he would only consider taking a new medication if something else was discontinued, would you be willing to stop something in order to get colchicine on board? I think we're at a point in our treatment of many of our patients like JT where we need to start making some difficult choices about what medications to start, which ones to stop, and which ones to continue. So there are really two things to consider here, uh, either adding colchicine to his existing regimen or stopping an agent, which at this time is the patient's preference. So the first thing that I would consider is if this patient would have been included in the LODOCO2 trial. So this patient does have stable CAD with the event occurring one year ago. 
this patient would meet inclusion criteria, I think it's reasonable to add colchicine. But now we have to ask ourselves, what medication, if any, could we stop? So he's on good background therapy with aspirin as well as clopidogrel, high-intensity statin, beta blocker, and ROS inhibitor. And colchicine would not be taking the place of one of those agents except maybe clopidogrel. Something to note, 23% of patients were uh, included in the trial. They were on DAP therapy. But I think to answer this question, we could turn to the DAP score, which is a risk stratifying tool used in patients who have completed 12 months of dual antiplatelet therapy, just to see if dual antiplatelet therapy is still warranted. In order to calculate this score, we would need to talk to the patient and gather some additional information. But if the score is low, I think it would be reasonable to go ahead and start colchicine at a dose of 0.6 milligrams once daily and stop clopidogrel. When looking at the outcomes of DAP therapy, like Rob discussed previously, we only saw a reduction in ischemic events, which was also seen in LODOCO2 trial, but without that additional risk of bleed. However, given the complexity of this case and concern for heart failure management, I would not recommend to add colchicine at this time and just focus on optimizing heart failure medications, but coming back to that at future visits. So, Rob, Taylor, I want to thank you both for joining me today to discuss the treatment of ASCVD and targeting systemic inflammation with colchicine. I think the results of the Lodoco 2 study provide even more compelling evidence that systemic inflammation is an important therapeutic target, and it seems likely that colchicine will be among the recommended therapies as guidelines for the treatment of ischemic heart disease are updated. The challenge today, I think, is deciding which among many effective treatments is the best treatment cocktail for each individual patient. And I think that's where we're going to be spending a lot more of our time and energy trying to figure out. Well, tell us what you think. When should colchicine be part of the treatment regimen? Remember, only iFormerX members can leave comments and use the interactive features on the site. You can become a member of iFormerX. It's free, so sign up today. And if you are a board-certified ambulatory care pharmacist, you can earn board recertification and continuing education credit for listening to this podcast and reading the commentary on the iFormerX website. We've partnered with the American Pharmacists Association to offer this program for BCACP recertification credit, so click on the link posted below the commentary on our website to learn more. And lastly, I want to recognize Dr. Henry Bussey who was this year's ACCP Paul Parker Medal recipient for his work as an ambulatory care pharmacy pioneer. Henry and his daughter, Marie, created the ClotCare website in the early days of the internet, and their work really was an inspiration for starting iFormerX. Henry has written commentaries for iFormerX and occasionally posted comments on iFormerX over the years, so it's an honor to have this legendary pharmacist as an active member of the iFormerX community. So thank you, Henry, for being an inspiration to us all. Until next time, this is Stuart Haynes, Editor-in-Chief of iFormerX, signing off. Mm-hmm.